Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 508, Retracing Steps. In this week's episode, we went back through all of the sightings that we had for Michael, Stevie, and Christopher on the afternoon of May 5th, 1993, and tried to organize them into a hypothetical timeline. By the end of the episode, we had a timeline that seemed to fit all of the different sightings with a few major differences from the past known narrative. A lot of listeners had a lot to say and a lot of questions, so let's get right into it. All right, before we get started with the listener questions, do you want to talk to everybody about what's coming up in May? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that first. So many of you may already know, and a lot of you may not, but during the first weekend in May, this year is going to be the second annual CrimeCon convention. Last year, we had an awesome time, podcasters, writers, and TV personalities, and from every other medium in true crime, all gathered together to not only meet each other and network, but more importantly, to connect with all of the listeners, viewers, and fans. We personally had an amazing time last year at CrimeCon. We got to meet and hang out with several other true crime podcasters, and in the evenings, we went down to the bar and got to hang out with a bunch of listeners. It's a really good time, and this year, it's going to be in Nashville, Tennessee. And this year, CrimeCon just happens to be taking place on the 25th anniversary of the murders of Michael, Christopher, and Stevie. The convention runs from May 3rd through May 6th, and tickets are now on sale, and CrimeCon has given our listeners a special promo code where you can get 10% off of your tickets. So for any of you who are interested in attending CrimeCon, and I hope that's a lot of you, we love meeting all of you when we go to events like this, you can go to CrimeCon's website and order your tickets, and if you use promo code JUSTICE, that could be 10% off of your standard tickets. So again, if you're interested in spending a few days with us at CrimeCon in Nashville this May, again, that's May 3rd through the 6th, go to CrimeCon's website. When you purchase your tickets, make sure to enter promo code JUSTICE, and they'll give you 10% off of your purchase. I know we're both really looking forward to it, and hopefully we'll see a lot of you guys there. Yeah, we definitely had an awesome time last year. It was a one-of-a-kind experience. Now let's move on to our questions. First, AJ writes to us, given how essential to the story, quote, Mystery Boy is, can you think of any reason why the name of a person, presumably a child, has been redacted from police reports? It's so frustrating. I can think of some reasons why it would be redacted, um, just given that it's a juvenile and I guess they don't have, you know, if it wasn't a member of that family, they don't have the parent's permission when it becomes public record. Uh, You'll find in many police reports where the, the names of anyone under the age of 18 is redacted. But what strikes me as odd about it is the fact that 
it's just not consistent. You know, other juveniles' names are listed throughout all those door-to-door notes, and for some reason, just that one is redacted out. So I'm not sure really what that means. Um, I guess we could go back through and look and see if maybe like in all the other instances, a parent was there. But still, you know, the redacting would happen years later, like when when whoever went to uh, the West Memphis PD evidence room to copy all those files or or through an open records request, that's when they would have been redacted. So it just seems odd for someone who wasn't there, doesn't know if the parent gave permission to just choose randomly that name to redact out. On that topic, do you want to update listeners with what's going on with you next week? Yeah, sure. So I'm leaving on Sunday, uh, the day that our main episode drops this week, the interview with Dawn Moore, to head back down to West Memphis. I've got a couple people I need to interview. Uh, I've got some door-to-door canvassing to do. And then one of my plans was to go to the evidence room to try to get any missing files and review the evidence. Unfortunately, yesterday I spoke with uh, the captain in charge of that evidence at West Memphis PD. He ran things by the chief, and I kind of got shut down. They directed me back to the Callahan site and said everything was there. I told them I wanted to copy this stuff anyway because some of the things on the site are cut off or, or redacted. And the captain in charge said that he would be willing to do that with me, but next week while I'm there, he happens to be out of town. It seemed a little bit like a blow-off, but he, I mean, he was a nice guy. He seemed like he would be willing to do it with me. But then I also talked about the, the physical evidence, and the chief of police there said that they would not allow me to view any of the physical evidence, and also noting that there was a lawsuit just a few years ago where whoever decided on that, I don't know if he said it was the attorney general's office or if it was uh, the state Supreme Court, but whoever it was ruled that the West Memphis PD did not have to allow people to view the physical evidence in the case, which, I mean, I'm going to look into, I know there was a lawsuit. I know actually some of the family members sued the West Memphis PD at one point in hopes to inspect some of the evidence and they were shut down. It just seems odd. I mean, Arkansas law must be very different than other states where we've worked because we've never had a problem doing this before with a closed case. Um, you know, if it's an active case, they, they, they keep that stuff pretty close to the chest. But uh, I just found it really, really strange that the case is technically closed, like in its absolute finality, unless we can convince them to reopen it, uh, in the fact that, you know, the convictions were vacated and then reaffirmed through the Alfred plea. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to inspect the evidence. Now, Mike, you've been there with me uh, down in Texas when we've done this. And of course, you know, they take precautions. We have somebody supervising us. We have to put on rubber gloves. We don't break any seals, you know, so if something's in a baggie, we can view it through the baggie, uh, but we're not, you know, we're not physically taking things out, but it's just, it's a little frustrating because it's just an odd law and apparently was upheld by a higher court that they don't have to share that information. Now that's across the board, or is that just with maybe high profile cases like this one? It, it, I think it has to be across the board. I, I just, I can't imagine that they can pick and choose where they're going to enforce uh, that law, but I was wondering the same thing. Um, but the other thing is it just for the new chief to keep like, it's, I guess my thing is, what do they have to hide? You know, why, why would they be concerned about somebody going through the evidence? And I, I suppose maybe a part of it is they're just tired of dealing with it and they don't want to mess with it anymore. But the impression I got from the captain when I spoke with him was that this isn't something that happens all the time. Uh, it seemed like it was the first time he personally has dealt with it because he had to ask the chief how to handle it and call me back. Uh, so it just seems so strange to me that they're so resistant to anybody seeing that evidence, even the family members. Uh, I think it was Pam Hobbs and John Mark Byers, if memory serves, that wanted to come in and inspect some of the evidence. I think, I think Pam even wanted to, uh, get some of Stevie's belongings back since the, the case was closed and 
Uh, for whatever reason, they were turned down and weren't even allowed to view the evidence, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, yeah, so as far as the evidence room and why that was redacted, that was actually one of the reasons I wanted to view the files, because I wanted to see who, who that name was, you know, because it wouldn't be redacted in the original file. It's just redacted like that when things are turned over or copied for the public. So, uh, but in any case, uh, as of right now, uh, my trip to Arkansas will not include a trip into the evidence room, although I am hoping to maybe stop and talk to the police chief and just kind of feel him out a little bit and introduce myself to him. But we'll see how that goes. Listener Katrina was talking about the boys leaving the woods who offered Don Moore a shot. She wants to know specifically what is a shot. Well, we don't know. Don Moore said that she believed they were talking about drugs. Remember, she was 10 years old at the time. So when they said, do you want a shot? She was thinking needles, drugs. I think most people, if they were to offer you a shot, uh, they would typically be talking about alcohol, a shot of hard alcohol. Uh, but, I mean, we, all we can really do is speculate about that. Okay, and Kayla has a couple questions. First, the boys who came out and asked if someone wanted a, quote, shot, were they ever questioned? And is it possible that they met with someone back in the woods and that that person or people are the ones who murdered the boys? Since it's been said the boys knew their attacker, maybe the attacker or attackers were on drugs and thought that the three boys would identify them. The problem that we have is we don't know if the three, or the, the three boys that came out of the woods were ever questioned because we don't know who they are. They were never identified. Um, as we mentioned in this episode, uh, I'm kind of working on a theory that maybe Carlos Seals and maybe some of his friends or brothers were part of that group, uh, just given the fact that it was um, Kim and or Dawn said they saw them go into a house on the west side of Wilson Road, south of Goodwin. They said it was one of four houses, and Carlos Seals lived five houses down from Goodwin on the west side of, of Wilson. So, And there was some uh, interviews that went on with Carlos Seals later on, and we'll get into some of those uh, case files here in a little bit. But we just don't know if he was one of those people. They never asked him, were you in the woods and offered somebody a shot? So if Carlos Seals was one of those people, then yes, the police talked to them. But if not, then no, we don't know as far as we, we just don't have any way of knowing. Jeremy wants to know if the discovery site was ever metal detected. His thought is that with the killers giving some criminal sophistication given the concealment, there could have been a weapon buried there. Uh, that's a good question. As, as far as I know, it wasn't. Somebody else, another listener that maybe has been you know, looking into these details longer than me may know better. But I, I don't recall ever seeing anything about a metal detector. Uh, and of course, now that would be a lost cause because... The where the place where the creek is is gone. It's been completely filled in. So you know you had a creek bottom that was kind of a ten foot down a ravine, and now it's flat ground there. So whatever was buried down at the bottom of that ditch bank is now ten fifteen feet under the ground at this point. All right, our next question comes from Megan. What information leads to there being a fourth boy in the woods? I understand the different witness statements may put a fourth boy around the neighborhood, but nothing about there being another boy in the woods. Well, you had the witnesses. You have. Betty Lou and Jeff Martins that, you know, back in September, you know, a few months later, Jeff updated his statement and Betty Lou gave a statement saying that they saw um, all three boys with a fourth boy right up there. And off the top of my head, I don't remember if they said they saw them going into the woods or they were just near the entrance to the woods. Uh, but then you had Brian Woody's statement who claimed to see four boys, specifically four boys going into the woods, one of them having spiky blonde hair, uh, consistent with Stevie Branch. Uh, so th there was, his was, I think, the most specific, seeing that all four of them go into the woods, uh, where the other sightings were just there right by the entrance to the woods. Uh, but that that would be 
why we're kind of making that assertion that likely or possibly, hypothetically, there were four people, four boys going into the woods right there was because we've got four different witnesses all saying there was four boys right there, one specifically saying they saw them go into the woods. Roberta asks, about this, quote, mystery boy, how is it possible that his parents never told the police or anyone else that their son was playing with the three boys killed that day? That's a really good question, and uh, that's part of the reason I'm heading to Arkansas this week. I can't really get into details right now. I'll, I'll say that we have a couple of leads on who the fourth boy may be, but I'm not in a position to release names or discuss it right now. I know a few people have brought it up in a few places, and I'm just not comfortable with it because the person hasn't been vetted yet. And so, you know, I have a hard time you know, with new people coming forward, relaying what they're saying. Uh, none of this was said directly to me, so it's kind of third hand until I've had an opportunity to actually speak with them and, and go through the process that we go through with every witness. Uh, where we go through you know, a statement analysis after we speak with them, while we're speaking to them. We have a couple of experts. If there's a real question, look at it. And then, of course, we compare what they're saying to other known evidence, and we just don't have any of that. But we have a potential lead, uh, but nothing concrete yet at this point. So I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it, this particular uh, lead that we have, it, it seems that the parents, for some reason, didn't want them involved. I don't know, but it's, it, there's just a lot of mystery around this person. I don't know yet if it's credible, but who knows? I mean, th this isn't something, you know, if we compare it to, say, like Jamie Clark Ballard's situation, where she just saw the boys riding around and saw the allegedly the stepdad hollering at them to come back. That's not anything that you would find really compelling or interesting or necessary to tell the police. You would assume they already knew that. Uh, that's very different than if someone was actually physically with the boys leading up to and right around the time when they went missing. Uh, that's very different, but you know, it's, who knows if there really was a fourth boy, we don't know what, or if he saw anything, uh, don't know if he said anything to his parents about it. It's, it's hard to say. Okay. Nicole writes, my main question about the proposed timeline is this, the mystery fourth boy that is seen on Barton is provided by Narlene Hollingsworth, but she gets a lot of details wrong. Couldn't this sighting be dismissed? It could be dismissed, but it's, I'm not ready to dismiss it yet. Uh, meaning that, you know, she has some details wrong, uh, but there's some, you know, when you kind of analyze that statement, uh, you're looking at what does she remember. She remembers specifics about one particular boy, the boy that she almost hit with the bike, right? That had the, the shorts on, was able to describe him, the bike and all that. And of course, that's neither of our boys. Mm -hmm. So it, it could have just been a different group of three boys and have nothing to do with them. Um, and there's a lot more issues with, with Hollingsworth that we're going to get into in coming episodes that would lead you to believe that maybe she's not being 100% honest. But again, as we've mentioned before, if you think somebody's lying, you got to look, where's the utility? What's the utility in her lie? And there's, it's hard to find any utility there. You know, if it was to try to, say, collect the reward money, which we haven't even begun to get into yet, uh, the motivation for a lot of people who did come out of the woodwork with um, information, supposedly, and I use air quotes with the word information, uh, when all of a sudden there was a bunch of money out there for anyone with information. But she doesn't say, I saw, you know, specifically Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. You know, she focuses in on the one boy that's not any of the three, but maybe thinks maybe was one of them, doesn't really know the boys. I don't know what to think of Hollingsworth's statement. Like I said, it could be a lie. It could be misremembering a different day, uh, or it could just be a different group of boys, or it could be accurate. It could be, you know, Stevie and Michael traveling with uh, a fourth boy who was heavier set and wearing shorts. 
So right now we're still, or I'm still in the process here. I'm very careful not to throw anything out. And that's part of the reason for the exercise that we did here, which we created a hypothetical timeline trying to incorporate all of the sightings uh, that could be possible. Now, some of those may not be legit and may later need to be thrown out, or we may never know the answer to it. But we, we got to see if everyone was telling the truth, you know, hoping for best intentions from everyone who came forward with information, does it all fit into a flowing narrative? Or, or I guess more accurately to say, could it all fit into a flowing narrative? And that, that was a, a big point of the exercise this week. Okay, and listener Kim wants to know, could Kim Williams have been mistaken for a boy? Um, I don't know. I, I'm going to say no, because Ben Crafton didn't say I saw the boys uh, with a girl. Well, I'll, I'll circle back because there's another angle on that question I'm just thinking of. But, uh, but Ben Williams said, I saw Kim Williams, excuse me, Ben Crafton said, I saw Kim Williams with the boys. So, if, so I guess more of their angle is somebody that said they saw a fourth boy with them. Could that have been Kim Williams? Right. And again, I'll say no, because the sightings that include Kim Williams, uh, the time when Kim Williams said she was with them, which was a very short period of time when she just saw them in passing, and that must have been when Ben Crafton looked out and saw them because he assumed she was with them, but it must it could have just been a very brief encounter. It was only Stevie and Michael at that point, no Christopher, or later there was four. So there was never a sighting during the time frame that would include when Kim Williams was with them where there was four. It was just Kim Williams with Stevie and Michael. Okay. Elise wants to know, is there definitive proof that Todd Moore was really at work on the night of the murders? No, there's not that I'm aware of. And that's not to throw any kind of shade onto Todd Moore or anything like that. It's just the fact that, at least from the records we have, West Memphis PD never interviewed him. And it looks like, if I remember correctly, in, in the files, they, they spoke with him a little bit. Um, but there's no evidence of any verification that he was at work that day, uh, and as we'll get into in probably next week's follow-up, there's even some evidence that he may not have been, but it's questionable. Um, but no, we don't have any any legitimate source. That we, we, can't, we don't have any documentation or even a police interview to pinpoint, yes, it was proven 100% that Todd Moore was at work. Uh, I will say my personal opinion, I think that he probably was, um, but that's just we just don't have any evidence to back that up yet. Okay, and Debbie has a few questions. What is meant by Miss Hobbs when she said she picked up Stevie because Amanda was, quote, acting up? Was Miss Hobbs already at the school to get Amanda? If I recall correctly, Amanda was four years old, so maybe she was in preschool at the same school as Stevie. Next, she says, what time did she sign him out of school? What did Stevie do from the time he got home until 3.30 when Michael showed up? If they were not at the same school, why would a parent take a child who was, quote, acting up to pick up Stevie early for no reason? Part of the problem here is all of the people that have actively spoken about the case, uh, Pam Hobbs being one, uh, John Mark Byers being another, have talked about the case for 25 years. Uh, and in different, you know, so you have, you know, when they were talked to that day, a few days later, a couple weeks later, a couple years later, and, uh, you know, they're on a TV show after that, and then they're interviewed for a movie here. And with some of the parents, there's there's a lot of, alleged drug use over the time and alcoholism and things like that. So it, even for someone attempting to tell the truth all the time for all those years, it, they're just not probably going to be consistent. And with, with Pam, her times aren't consistent over the years. So you'll read an interview with her in one place, and she'll say things happen specifically at this time and this way. 
And then you'll read another interview with her where it's a completely different story. And to me, a lot of the time, it's not intentional lying or anything like that. It's just, you know, time has passed, emotions are high. And so it's it's hard to really pinpoint things. Also, in my opinion, as we'll get into much, much later down the road, I think that confirmation bias plays a lot into uh, some of the the family members that are have been interviewed later, um, years later, uh, meaning, you know, as confirmation bias where, you know, you hear something, you're led to believe something a certain way, and either knowingly or most of the time unknowingly, it kind of warps your memory to fit that. And, and we'll see a lot of that as we move along uh, with a few family members. But so anyway, I guess to get back to your point, I've read several interviews with Pam, and the story is, as far as signing out early, I think is pretty accurate in that Pam went with Amanda, the four-year-old daughter, to a friend's house. They walked. Uh, Pam couldn't drive at the time in the neighborhood. Spent some time there. I think she said she went over there around two, uh, hung out there for a little bit, and then walked to the school to get Stevie, got to the school to pick him up. And it wasn't time for the bell to ring yet, and Amanda was acting up, and there was she just didn't want to keep standing there waiting for Stevie to get done because Amanda was just was just giving her a hard time. Which, for any of you that ever had a four year old, I've had several, and they can certainly be an ass pain in situations like that. Um, but she, so that as the story goes, she's sitting there waiting for Stevie to get out. Amanda's acting up, and she says, "You know, to hell with it." Basically, goes to the office and says, "Can I just sign Stevie out?" Um, so signs him out a little early to head home. As far as the time goes, um, I think she has specifically at one point said she signed him out at 2.30. Another time, I think she said 2.45. Um, if we kind of track with her story about, you know, at 2 o'clock going to her friend's house and we know where her friend's house was, spent time there, then walked to the school, then waited a minute, then called him. I mean, it could have been 2.50. It's it's hard to say. But the the reason she signed him out is because she was there waiting to pick him up, to walk home with him, and Amanda was acting up. And so she said, forget it, I'm just going to sign him out and go home. The timing, uh, we know, I, I believe the school bell rang at 2.55. I don't know, because in one of Pam's statements, I believe, I think she specifically said she picked him up at school at 2.55. So that could have been the time she signed him out, because I think Dana Moore said that uh, school got out at 3. So it could have been five minutes early. I've always kind of assumed you know, from, you know, as as we're going through these case documents, you see a statement by a parent that says, you know, we got out of school at 255. We put up here on our investigation board on the wall, 255 school out. And then you read another parent and it says three. And then she left early and then picked him up at 230, then 245. Um, so I'm not real sure about the time, but that's the reason. All right. Magna writes, is the main assumption that the boys were playing in the woods and just ran into the wrong person or people there? If so, is playing in those woods on their bikes something they would have done before? Well, it's hard to say what the main assumption is because there's there's several people, I mean, mi- literally millions of people that all have different viewpoints on the case. So I, I guess I can only speak for myself. And for myself, my personal opinion at this point, which certainly can and most likely will shift over time as we get deeper into the investigation, uh, no, I don't think they just ran into somebody at the wrong place in time. I mean, it, I just don't believe in coincidences like that, and, and there's no, and to me, there's no evidence of that happening here. So, if someone just happened to be laying in wait, or they stumble across somebody or somewhere, I mean, there's some scenarios you can run through in your mind where that could have happened, where they decide all of a sudden snap and brutally kill these boys, and 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 have the criminal sophistication to conceal the bodies and and all that. It could happen, but no, I I personally I believe that 
Uh, and we're going to get, I think, two episodes from now, we're going to get into this. But uh, just as a, as a quick little teaser, I guess, into my kind of analysis of the case, I believe that whoever killed them had a reason to be in the woods. Uh, I think that because there's no one, I don't believe, could have predicted that the boys would have been in the woods. There's just no way, based on what we know about the timeline of victimology uh, and everybody that spoke with them and saw them, no one could have predicted that they were in the woods. So um, it's not my main assumption that that happened. It could have happened that, you know, maybe they stumbled upon something, saw something they shouldn't have, certainly. Uh, as far as them playing in the woods, from what I'm understanding, uh, John Mark Byers told me that Christopher wasn't allowed over on that side of the pipe bridge in the woods. His brother Ryan at one point wrote an affidavit that said that, you know, they were fishing in the bayou and, you know, he tried to get Chris to cross the pipe to go on the other side and Chris wouldn't go because he was scared. Um, there's other statements that say they have been over there before. Michael Moore says he had a hideout back there, but we don't even know if he was talking about across the bridge or on the south side of the pipe. Um, and uh, Stevie Branch, as far as I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I, there's anything specific, but uh, I don't think that he was known to go over there. And Don Moore, uh, one of the things you'll hear in the interview coming up on Sunday is said that they specifically weren't even allowed to play in the Robin Hood woods south of the bayou. So I don't think it was typical for them to be back there based on that. But again, it's just you know years and memories and everything over the time. It, it's it's really this is a case is very very difficult to sort through years of statements to try to find the the accurate one or the truth. All right, Azul writes the boys were carrying backpacks. Could the mentions of them wearing shorts not be accurate? They could have had a change of clothes in the backpacks. Well, for starters, we don't know if the boys did have backpacks on. We do know there were no backpacks found at the crime scene. And I I want to say Narlene Hollingsworth said the boys had backpacks. And, I think so. Yeah, and then maybe somebody else too. But there's there's a lot of indications or indicators that they didn't in the fact that, like I said, backpacks weren't found at the crime scene, which the offender or offenders could have left with the backpacks. But if they were leaving the scene with the backpacks, why go through all the trouble of hiding and disposing of all the clothes? It would be much easier to throw that stuff into the backpacks and take it out with them. Um, just kind of food for thought as far as what the killers or killers might have done. But as far as, you know, if they if they misidentified the backpacks, could they have misidentified the shorts? Yeah, they, they definitely could have. And beyond that, you know, they, they could have actually seen kids with shorts and backpacks and they were just the wrong kids. I mean, it's just there's so many so many unknowns out there and we just don't have the follow up from West Memphis PD uh, to answer a lot of these questions. You know, they were they were quickly going through and taking little notes. It's frustrating. You know, we go back to like the Bobby Posey note. You know, there's a lot of information there and there's a lot of unanswered questions there. And we just don't see any follow up. We don't see like them bringing Bobby Posey in for an interview. I mean, he was someone who saw Chris Byers, according to that note, was one of probably the last people to see him live that day. Certainly saw him that day one way or another. They don't bring him in for an interview. It's right. crazy. They should have brought him in and interviewed him. All right, and Summer says, isn't it possible the boys were switching bikes and riders off and on throughout the afternoon? This could help explain why some people report seeing different kids on different bikes. Yeah, that's a possibility we've considered, and it's it's definitely a possibility. I mean, we can't rule that out. You know, if we look at, uh, like, Chris Wall's statement that he saw Chris Byers specifically and the blonde kid on the bikes, but then describes a bike that seems like Michael Moore's, sure, it's possible that Chris was on Michael's bike. I don't know where Michael would have been, but it's definitely possible. There's a lot of, and I, and I know a lot of these answers aren't um, really satisfying, but the best I can give you is, yeah, that's possible. 
Okay, and Paul wants to know, when was Chris Wall investigated? Is it possible his girlfriend was actually trying to alibi him for the murder, not to verify his canvassing notes? It was uh, off the top of my head, I believe, within a week of the murders is when he was investigated or spoken to by police. Uh, you know, first there was the door-to-door notes. Geez, the 9th or the 12th is sticking out in my head mm. right now without having it in front of me when he was questioned, uh, when he was, he was you know, named through a tip as a possible suspect. Uh, but yeah, that's a really good point uh, Paul has there that you know the the questions could have been related. As a matter of fact, the more I think about it, it, that's probably right. You can see, go back to what I just said about Bobby Posey, the police never had any interest in tracking the boys' movements. They never cared about that. They know where they were found, and in my mind, I think they just thought, well, they were in the woods, they, they went in the woods. So they didn't really care. That's why they didn't follow up on any of that. So it would seem odd to me that Later, after, uh, you know, months later, after uh, the three were arrested, that they go back to him to say, we want to, or they go to Brandy, his girlfriend, because they want clarification on his sighting. I think you're exactly right. I think that, or Paul's exactly right, that it was probably more to um, ruling Chris out as a suspect. Um, That makes a lot of sense. And in that case, you know, for all we know, she could have been lying even. You know, Mm -hmm. if they're saying, well, where was he at that night? He says... You know, he called you on the phone or whatever, or might not have even prompted her at all. And and the response could have been more along the lines of he couldn't have had anything to do with this because he was at night school. I always called him at night school at this time. Then he called me when he got home. There's no way that he could have been involved. I think that's probably definitely the most likely scenario as far as why she was being questioned. I have extremely high doubts that at that time, that much long later, that the officers at West Memphis PD were talking to her to try to get a better clarification on the sighting. That just It's not consistent with anything else we've seen from them. Okay, listener Kelly has a question. She wants to know if the time of death of the boys was ever established. Uh, no, it wasn't. I mean, people will point to the fact that uh, Dr. Frank Peretti at trial, uh, in the first trial, never gave a cause of death. Or excuse me, the first trial never gave a time of death. At the second trial, he again, uh, when asked about it, points out that it's just it's a lot of guesswork and estimations. They really can't pinpoint a time, which is accurate. And that's that whole CSI effect that people have, where CSI, you know, they they are, they they stick a thermometer in the liver and can tell you exactly when they died. Um, that's not how it works. Time of deaths are typically mostly due to a study of victimology, uh, where you know they 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 estimate based on when was the last time they were seen, when was the first time we know that they were disappeared or they weren't that they did disappear, I should say. And they'll look at things like lividity, uh, when lividity fixes, rigor mortis. Uh, but even that is so, you, you can't nail anything down for exact time because the range of time, say for lividity to fix, can be anywhere from different, depending what book you're reading, six to 12 hours. So that's a six hour window. And then that is dependent upon temperature, uh, all kinds of different factors. Uh, environmental factors, uh, and same thing with rigor mortis. So Peretti was correct when he explained that on the stand. Medically speaking, you you can't pinpoint a time. Uh, I believe it was in cross-examination, and we're going to get into Peretti's testimony, I think, next week. We'll get into a little more detail, but uh, he was pressed to give a time of death, and he, and then he eventually says, uh, based on whatever factors he has, he believes it, it most likely occurred between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., which to me is, and I'll, and I'll point out, there are people that take that for gospel. There are people that have theories 
that the boys didn't die till then. So that they they might find that accurate. To me personally, I think that's unlikely. Based on the crime scene and all the other evidence, I think it's unlikely that they were alive until one o'clock in the morning, which we'll get into in a couple of weeks as to why that is. But also, I don't think Peretti was prepared to answer that question. Uh, it was not in any of his reports, not in any of his notes. They kind of forced him to come up with a time on the spot, uh, and he spits out one a.m. to five a.m. It was off the cuff. I just, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'll just say this, that the only time of death ever given was the estimated time that Peretti was kind of forced into on the stand when he said between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. And I will just also go on my own humble personal opinion is that he's wrong. But that's just my opinion. Okay, Jessica says, I wondered if the boys' teachers or scout leaders or other adults they were close to were questioned. Was there anyone the boys had mentioned bothering or following them in the past? Had they mentioned making any new older friends? Well, Jessica, you win the gold star for being a quality detective because those are exactly the questions that should have been asked. An investigation like this should always start with the people closest to the victims and then work outward in concentric circles. And that's what you're trying to do. And I know, I, th- I think somebody actually put a post on the Truth and Justice Facebook page this morning that said she's tired of hearing me say the word victimology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I apologize for that, but here it comes again. But that's why the study of victimology is so important. That's how you investigate these crimes. You, you have to figure out what were the risk factors for the victims. What were they exposed to? Who had uh, the opportunity to, to connect with them? asking those questions, and you get that information from long interviews with the parents, uh, friends, teachers, scout leaders, everything she just said there. That's how you get that information, and the answer is no. The West Memphis Police Department didn't do any of it. They tried to solve this crime based on rumor and evidence at the crime scene, which there was little to none. Later on, there was some forensic testing 15 years later, but at the time, there was no forensic evidence at all for them to try to tie to anyone and instead of looking back to the victims, because I, you've heard me say it before, and I, I'll say it again, if you can understand the victimology and, and really look at the elements and the behavior at the crime scene, that should be shining you, like, like looking into a mirror back at the offender. Every single crime is committed for a particular reason against a particular person at a particular time, at a particular place for a particular reason. And if you can figure that out, that helps direct you to who you should be looking for as far as a suspect pool. But in this case, they don't know the answers to any of those questions. I mean, imagine if they had, imagine if they had, uh, say, you know, Melissa Byers, who passed away a couple of years later, and she's unavailable for anybody to talk to now. Imagine if they talked to Melissa Byers and she told them, yeah, there was actually this guy that kept coming around and there was all, the, you know, all these different risk factors uh, that were out there, but they didn't. So we don't know. Okay, Robert says, interested to know why Cynthia Rico's sighting wasn't included in the episode. She saw all three boys on two bikes by the bridge going across the bayou as she traveled east on the service road at approximately 6 to 6.30. Traffic was slow moving, and by the time she turned onto North 18th Street, they were moving west by the tree line close to the houses. Okay, there's a couple of reasons why Cynthia Rico's sighting was not included uh, in the episode. In the number one reason, uh, full disclosure, I forgot about it. Uh, I just I just missed it, you know. Shame, right? I know. Uh, was, you know, because I was kind of working mostly off the door to door notes, where I was pulling from, plus other sightings that I, rem- you know, I remembered specifically, uh, and was able to go back and draw them back out, like Narling Hollingsworth, who was not in the door to door sightings, but I've I've studied her sighting before, 
and I just spaced Cynthia Rico's. So that's reason number one. Uh, but I went back and assessed. I was I was actually part of that conversation on Facebook because they pointed out to me that I'd missed it. So I went back to it to look at it. There's a couple things with Cynthia Rico's. Number one, most importantly, if that's a legitimate sighting, in my opinion, it helps our theory or our hypothesis more than it hurts it. I mean, so w- what we hypothesized was that around 630, the boys go into the woods off the dead end of Goodwin, which is right there by Devil's Den, which would be the tree line that's visible from 18th Street. So she's saying she saw all three boys right there at that tree line at the exact time that we believe that the boys were right there at that tree line. So there's no issue with including her sighting. As far as assessing the credibility of it, I had looked into it before, and it it seems fishy to me, but it's, again, another one of those where it's hard to come up with a reason why she would lie, why she would call police with this tip. And she was interviewed a couple times and gave a handwritten statement. Uh, But essentially, if you're looking at the map, so she's driving on the service road which and heading east, which means she's driving right past the Blue Beacon, right past the patch of woods where the boys were found, uh, goes past a big open field, and then where the bayou itself crosses the service road, she says that as she was crossing the service road there, she looked, and, and her statement actually says, I saw all three boys in the bayou. And the detective that interviewed her actually went out to the scene and took photos from that bridge, uh, and they're included in the Callahan website, uh, to see what she could see from there. Mm-hmm. And it looks to me like you can't see anything. I mean, th- th- there's there's woods on both sides of the bayou right there. It's a very tight, narrow space. There's no open ground there, like where there was like a path or anything. So it just seems odd, like how could she see them right there? Also, she said traffic was slow moving, but how slow moving? I mean, the speed limit. So th- for those of you that aren't familiar with what a service road is, now, this particular one, which Mike and I have been on a million times from all our trips down there, is you've got the main interstate, and then beside the interstate, you have what they call the service roads, which is just a one-way road right there next to the interstate, and it, and it makes it so that you can stay off the highway, and it goes, I don't know what the speed limit is, but everybody seems to be going the same speed as they are on the highway, and then there'll be like little on-ramps from that uh, easy ons back onto the interstate itself. So it's running parallel right next to the highway. Uh, gives you access to any like businesses, you know, like the Blue Beacon. You, you, there's no exit there uh, to get to the Blue Beacon off the highway. The exit is about a quarter mile back. But you drive down the service road, and then you could hit any of these businesses. Uh, a little further back to the west, there's a, there's a big mercantile area or a commercial area where you got Walmart and Shoney's and all these restaurants. Again, there's not an exit for each one of those. The exit is way back, and then there's this parallel road that runs next to the highway, so you can access all of those. And then several points where you could veer back onto the highway anywhere from there. So anyway, that that's what the service road is. So my point being, the traffic is usually moving, you know, 65, 70 miles an hour on the service road, 55 at the minimum. I suppose there could have been a lot of traffic, but if you look at the map and look at the area and access, I don't know where that traffic would be going. Uh, there's, you know, the only thing really between that exit and the next one, which is up on Ingram, is the Blue Beacon. And then this neighborhood, there's not a lot there. And, and I've never seen it. We've driven, like I said, many times all hours of the day. Now, again, we're 24 years later. But I've never seen traffic backed up at all on that service road ever. But so anyway, so I, unless she's in a traffic jam, say she's even going 30 miles an hour when she drives across the bayou. And there's this tiny narrow window there with trees on both sides and a 20-foot wide bayou or 30-foot wide or however wide it is. You're talking about a millisecond. Yeah, a, a fraction of a second when you could have seen something. And she says she identifies 
all three boys specific. She names them Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch. She saw them when she passed there. And mind you, she's not looking for them. She's just driving home. And she just happens to notice and happens to notice which three boys all of them are. I'm not completely positive of how she knew them. Um, I feel like I did look into this at one point, but right now I can't pull it off the top of my head. But she names them. So she gets a good enough look at them and names them in that in that you know fraction of a second window that she crosses the bayou. Uh, and then she goes up a little ways further. Uh, I don't know what the distance is. I mean, it's less than a quarter of a mile. And turns right on 18th Street and heads south and says that then she sees them down by the tree row, which is way over by, by Goodwin, by the entrance to the Devil's Den, across this big field. So now you're looking at, she's looking at them across, I don't know, two, three hundred yards away, while driving, way over there by the tree row, there, and there, there's, there's some trees and bushes, I mean, it's not like it's a real clear view, still can identify them all by name, and, and also you got a couple problems there. One, that's a long distance. Why is she paying that close of attention to them when they're that far away and, and she doesn't know they're missing or anything? They weren't missing at the time. And then you factor in the speed that she's going. And then you have to consider the fact that she just said she saw them in the bayou when she was on the service road, when she crossed the bayou. And the only you can only see a very short stretch right there. And then however many seconds later, she makes the right turn on 18th. Now they're way down by the tree row. That's a really long distance for them to have traveled in that short a period of time. When you factor that stuff in, it just, like, I mean, I, I don't have any problem with her sighting. It just, it doesn't, to me, seem that it's it's really possible. It, it just seems very strange to me. But then you always go back to, what's the utility there? Why would she lie like that? And I just can't figure out any reason she would. Um, I did have one listener that added to the conversation and looked up. Apparently, what we do know about Cynthia Rico is she was recently picked up on a huge, it looked like federal narcotic trafficking situation. There was like 14 people across the country oh, wow. arrested as like, it sounded like, looked like, like kingpins in some huge drug operation. And she was one of them. I think the, the listener just put, if anybody's wondering what she's up to now, this is where she's at. Wow. Um, so uh, for what it's worth, that information's out there. But to put a button on it, who knows? I mean, again, her sighting would support the hypothesis that we're working on. Don't see any reason for her to lie about it. That doesn't make sense. But the way it was described also to me doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's um, it's going to be up to all of you to assess that for credibility because I, I can't give you an answer. All right. And Kara has a thought for us. If we believe the boys were killed by a random person or people in an unplanned attack in the woods, how useful is all this focus on a timeline? Essentially, their movements prior to their deaths would tell us nothing. Only their time of entry into the woods and time of death are what matters in the stranger scenario. So what do you think about this, Bob? Well, first of all, I want to point out that it's just my opinion, but I do not believe it was a random person in the woods. As I've said many times, I, whoever killed these boys was hunting them. And I don't necessarily mean hunting them with the intent to kill them. Uh, but I think that the only reason all three of those boys flee into those woods is because they're running from something. And I think the crime scene indicates that whoever was in there was there looking for them. And that's just just, just my opinion on that. But um, I don't think they just, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, just stumbled across some random person who decided, hey, here's three little boys. Let's murder all three of them uh, brutally. That's a huge leap, I think, to take. But I do think that it was unplanned. The murder was definitely unplanned. 
Um, but but let's say that it was a random person. What's the 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 intent or the reason for studying all the timeline? I guess I would say you don't know the answer to that question until you assess their movements uh, in their in their timeline. I mean, how do you know without doing this? How do you even know when they went into the woods? How do you know who they came across? How do you know who might have been following them or looking for them? The only way to come to that conclusion that it was someone random in the woods would be by tracking their movements and their timeline and their interactions that day. You know, say say we tracked these movements and we had 40 sightings of the boys that all said, yep, all three boys were together. They were on a playground. Then they were riding their bikes here. They were riding their bikes there. Nothing out of the ordinary. And then we saw them go into the woods. They were all laughing and giggling and going into the woods. If we had tracked the timeline and we found that, then we're thinking maybe it's somebody random in the woods they ran into. But by by doing what we did, we're finding that they were separated. They weren't together. We got Chris Byers saying that he's running away from home. Uh, we got uh, Stevie Branch completely unaccounted for for a large portion of the day. We know when he was supposed to be home and when he doesn't. So we start identifying what could be risk factors from that. So th- that's what the that's what the purpose is. Uh, and it, it, going back to what I've said before earlier in this episode and many times before, by running the investigation properly and going to the family members and working your way out, that's how you get that information, and that's how you narrow down a suspect pool. All right, and our last thought here comes from Mary. She wants an update on Ed Eights. Oh, that's great, because so Ed, for those of you that don't know, Ed Eights was our Season 2 case, and when we finished up his case, uh, we had actually worked with, I had met with the former prosecutor. Uh, Mike and I met, went and met with him. He agreed to um, help work with the new prosecutor, and the new prosecutor had agreed to not oppose DNA testing in Ed's case. Um, Ed Eights was convicted of a murder in Tyler, Texas back in 1993, just a few months after this particular murder occurred. He's been in prison ever since. Uh, there's n- and there's never been any testing or anything like that. And I just got word from Ed's attorney, Allison, last week, I think it was on Friday, that uh, the, the mo- I knew the motion had been filed before that, but the presiding judge has approved the motion for Ed's DNA testing, uh, which is awesome. It's huge. And um, I- I'm going to try to get Allison on the show here in a couple of weeks, Ed's attorney, um, to walk us through and explain all of that. But basically, we know right now is the judge has ordered all of the uh, evidence to be tested, to be delivered to the laboratory that's going to do the testing by the 15th of this month, which is Monday. So it'll be three days from now. Uh, And then it'll just be however long it takes to test it. Um, Again, Allison will give the specifics, but I I do want to point out that Matt Bingham, the current district attorney, uh, who I know I've kind of butted heads with over over the years that that we were working down in Tyler, Texas has been amazing through this. He he has he has followed through on his word where he said he wouldn't oppose it and um he did not oppose the motion. It was I think it was actually from a joint motion they filed it together and in their testing everything. Bingham is not afraid. We're in a really good situation because Bingham's not afraid of anything. He's he said give us a list of everything you want tested, which in most cases what ends up happening there is you file a, you say I want all this DNA tested. And the prosecutors say, well, you can test that or this or that. or that. And, we'll, and we'll find that in this particular case, the West Memphis 3 case that we're working on now eventually. But And then you got to take it before a judge, and the judge will decide what can be tested. Mr. Bingham in, in Smith County said, fine, test it all. And you know what? We actually found some more evidence. Let's test that too. Let's just test everything. So 
if there's any biological evidence that's going to set Edward Eights free, we're going to find out in a couple of months. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to Stephanie McConnell, Britta Bliss, Sarah Mueller, and Anna Dindor for transcribing our episodes. And thank you to Katie Ross of InTandemDesigns.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. And as always, we thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And you can always send us a voicemail at any time, day or night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to 269-224-2833. You can call that number to leave a question for the Friday follow-ups, any comments or tips on this case or any other case that we're working. And we do appreciate and enjoy when you guys do use the voicemail line so we can actually hear your voices. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.